From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Derek Dennis. Coming up, an angry President Biden. Wasn't any of their damn business. Lashing out at the special counsel for describing him as an elderly man with poor memory. That is, the Supreme Court considers whether former President Trump can be kicked off the presidential ballot over his role on January 6th. A first-of-its-kind verdict, the parent of a school shooter held criminally responsible for the people who were killed. It's not just you had warning signs. It's literally the parents are being called in the morning it happened. What's next for the mother and father of Ethan Crumbly in Michigan? And what it could mean for other parents of children who carry out mass shootings. And celebrating Black History Month, a conversation you may not have heard anywhere else. I felt a lot of shame. I was really embarrassed. When you're stuck in that cycle, you feel so empty, you feel so alone. Black athletes speaking publicly about their personal struggle with their mental health. All ahead on Perspective. Serious back-to-back questions this week involving former President Trump and separately President Biden. Special Counsel Robert Hur releasing a final report on the investigation into Biden's classified documents, finding he willfully retained materials but shouldn't be charged, saying the evidence doesn't establish his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Her suggesting if the case went any further, Biden would come across as sympathetic and as an elderly man with poor memory who, according to the special counsel, couldn't recall the exact date of his son Bo's death. Biden responded in anger. Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away or passed away. How in the hell dare he raise that? The special counsel's report and Biden's reaction renewing questions about his age and mental acuity just months before the presidential election. And then there's former President Trump, the U.S. Supreme Court taking up the issue of whether Trump can be kicked off the 2024 presidential ballot in Colorado and other states over claims he violated the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. Justices heard hours of oral arguments on both sides, and they're expected to issue a final opinion at a later date. ABC's Stephen Portnoy has more from the high court in Washington. Across ideological lines, justices were skeptical of the idea that a single state could decide to take a presidential candidate off the ballot. Liberal Justice Elena Kagan. Whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Conservative Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Just doesn't seem like a state call. Chief Justice John Roberts suggested if the Colorado ruling is allowed to stand, GOP-led states could strike Democratic candidates off the ballot. That's a pretty daunting consequence. Stephen Portnoy, ABC News, Washington. Now to Michigan and a closely watched verdict answering the question, who else besides a gunman could be responsible for a school shooting? In this case, it was Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of Oxford High School shooter Ethan Crumbly, found guilty of involuntary manslaughter for being grossly negligent and failing in her legal duty as a parent to ward off the warning signs in her own son. Craig Schilling's 17-year-old son was among the four students killed in the 2021 shooting. After the verdict, he blasted Jennifer Crumbly for shirking her responsibility to her child. You cannot choose to not take care of your child. You cannot choose to not nurture your child. You cannot choose to take your own interest over your child, especially when it comes to mental health. 
A look at the verdict, a first of its kind from ABC's Trevor Alt and why the jury chose to convict. Guilty, 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 guilty. Jennifer Crumbly, now the first parent held criminally responsible for a school shooting, found guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter. She sat motionless, looking down as the verdict was read before being taken away in handcuffs. Faced one count each for the lives of Justin Schilling, Tate Meir, Hannah St. Juliana, and Madison Baldwin, all killed November 30th, 2021, by her then 15-year-old son. The first thing that popped in my head was the people spoke. The fathers of Justin, Tate, and Hannah speaking together with ABC News. I didn't truly believe that they would come back with the guilty verdict, and then obviously just relief that they had. The jury deliberating nearly 11 hours over two days. Six men, six women, some parents, some gun owners, finding Jennifer Crumbly failed her duty as a parent, gifting her son the gun he used in the shooting and ignoring warning signs of his deteriorating mental health. She has done the unthinkable, and because of that, four kids have died. The defense tried to show Jennifer knew little about firearms and that securing the handgun was her husband's responsibility. But the jury foreperson saying after the verdict, The thing that really hammered at home is that she was the last adult with the gun. Jennifer Crumbly's sentencing is now set for April. She's facing up to 15 years in prison for each count. And her husband, James, is also facing these same four charges. He will go on trial in early March. ABC's Trevor Alt. So should this case put parents of other children who carry out a mass shooting on notice? ABC News chief legal analyst Dan Abrams talked about it on Good Morning America with hosts Robin Roberts, George Stephanopoulos and Lindsay Davis. Surprised? A little surprised that they got a verdict at all. Every lawyer I talked to would talk about what a tough case this is, right? You had to prove it was foreseeable. You had to prove she caused the death. And just about every non-lawyer I talked to would say, well, of course she's going to be held responsible. Mm. And so as I was thinking about what the outcome would be, I was thinking this is a jury. Uh, this is not a group of lawyers. And so I certainly thought that it was more likely there'd be a conviction. Of course, this type of case is rare. Do you think that we'll see more prosecutions like this? Maybe, but this was a particularly bad fact pattern for her. I mean, this was basically about as bad as you can get. It's not just you had warning signs. It's literally the parents are being called in the morning it happened. But do I think that there'll be prosecutors who will be looking at, let's say, a slightly lesser case? And I'll say, you know, remember that case in Michigan? That one worked. Maybe this is a time to hold more parents accountable. So it's certainly possible. Dad is going to be tried in March. How do you think that this case is going to impact potentially his trial? Well, so on the one hand, this will help him, right? He now gets to see everything that happened, what worked, what didn't. On the other hand, he is the one who's theoretically more culpable here, right? He was the one responsible for the gun. He's the one who went and actually bought the gun with him. He was the one who was responsible for the storage of the weapon. So that case could be a tougher one, but he'll have a little advantage in having been able to see how this case and went. It'll be uproar, the mom, but not the dad. Well, that's right, right? That would be a major concern, but they had to be tried separately because Jennifer Crumbly sort of pointing the finger at the dad, I expect a little bit of that from him as well, pointing the finger at her, so you had to separate the trials. What about sentencing? She could get up to 60 years? Yeah, I don't think it'll be anything like that. I think the more likely sentence would be something like five to 10 years. She's already served two years. Remember, she hasn't been released, and I expect that she'll be serving some more time, but it won't be 60 years. ABC's Dan Abrams. Coming up, the Maui wildfires six months later, a new report on the colossal failures, plus a look at the rebuilding efforts and why many on the island are still waiting for word on insurance claims. 
on Perspective after this. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Welcome back to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Derek Dennis. Parts of California drying out and cleaning up after a historic storm left at least seven dead across the state, killed in flooding from more than a foot of torrential rain. Nearly 500 mudslides were triggered, hundreds of trees down, and estimated $11 billion in damage. ABC's Alex Stone is in the storm zone with a look at the impacts. Derek, finally the birds are beginning to come out again. We're still getting some passing rain showers here, but I've covered a lot of hurricanes in my career. That is what this has felt like in the last week. The wind, the rain, people trapped on the top of their cars, rescues that were underway, and now the damage left behind. This is the sound of the floodwaters racing down a channel in Santa Barbara. And this is the wind, extreme wind combined with the rain. It was technically a bomb cyclone, more common on the East Coast, when a storm's pressure drops dramatically and the storm intensifies rapidly. As it came on shore, it was clear it was going to be historic. At 2 o'clock in the morning, we just heard this thunderous... Uh sound that was sustained it's just you know that sound was a hillside behind matthew davis's home giving way in the first two days of the storm there were over 300 mudslides homes were left damaged waterlogged hills just couldn't take it anymore la fire chief Kristen crowley 307 mudslides 35 incidents of buildings requiring inspection due to mudslides and slope failures. And then there was the flooding. L.A. typically gets about 14 inches of rain over the course of an entire year. By Tuesday night, parts of L.A. had already received nearly that amount in two days. The L.A. River, typically a dry concrete basin where movies like Grease have been filmed, was raging and rescues were carried out. Angelinos, as people here are called, were told to stay home to avoid driving and only go out if absolutely necessary. L.A. Mayor Karen Bass. Stay safe and off the roads. Only leave your house if it is absolutely necessary. As she was briefing reporters, her cell phone rang, and unexpectedly it was President Biden on the phone offering federal support. Mayor Bass put him on speakerphone. First of all, I think you guys are undergoing one hell of an operation here. As the storm was arriving, the governor declared a state of emergency, allowing the National Guard to deploy if needed. Mud went right through Dion Perinel's home, shattering windows and flooding the bedroom. The home is now yellow-tagged by the city. I can't tell you how many... People have called and said, I have a room. It's like, it, that's kind of overwhelming. You know, do you need anything? It's like, no, I'm fine. You know, I'm safe, but 
I'll, I don't know where I'm going to go just, just yet. Even though the cleanup is now underway here, the threat is not over yet. Just like how in the mountains, avalanche danger sticks around long after a snowstorm passes, the mudslide danger will be sticking around for a while because the ground is so super saturated. There are many water-soaked hillsides that have the potential to slide. One positive note, Derek L.A. says it has been able to capture some of this rainwater for future use. 1.3 billion gallons will be stored for when it's needed. And as we enter a new week, sunshine is in the forecast. Derek. Our thanks to ABC's Alex Stone in Los Angeles. ABC's Ginger Z has more on the wild weather, especially the record-breaking heat parts of the country has seen and what may be the cause. January, hottest January on record, eighth month in a row, and it felt like we just kept repeating the same thing, but we really haven't honed in on the why. Um, a lot of people will talk about the different variables, uh, but one of them is aerosols, meaning the particles in the air. NASA launched a satellite, and that satellite, called PACE, is not only going to be looking at the ocean and the plankton and how they kind of interact with carbon, but for this part, what's important, it'll be looking at aerosols, and they'll be able to figure out how those are interacting with our planet. Because sulfur dioxide, the thing that comes out of a lot of the fossil fuels that we burn, that actually reflects light. And so that, as we've reduced and made our air pollution better, has allowed more sunlight in, allowing us to heat more. So anyway, the satellite is going to help to determine that variable of aerosols and how much that has to do with the heat. ABC News Chief Meteorologist Ginger Z. We hit the six-month mark this week since the devastating and deadly wildfires in Maui. 100 people were killed, thousands of acres burned, and thousands of structures destroyed. And we now have an official report on the challenges that faced first responders and the failures of government to prevent them well before the flames flared up. ABC's Mola Lange with the latest from Maui. This after action report by the Maui County Police Department focuses specifically on the police response to what was the worst natural disaster in Hawaii history and the deadliest wildfire in America uh, in over a century. Investigators determining it was a perfect storm of high winds, quickly moving flames, almost zero visibility, downed power lines into roadways, making the few evacuation routes that exist uh, nearly useless, as well as some communications and equipment problems, all complicating the response to the August 8th fires here on Maui. And the report also noting that the police department's staffing was 25% shy of where it should have been. Now, among the report's recommendations, uh, new communications and tactical equipment for uh, responding officers. But, you know, we should note that the Maui police chief uh, also really defending his officers' response, crediting them with saving countless lives that day. Many of the officers themselves uh, lost their homes. Some lost friends, even family members. Mola Lange, thanks. No doubt about it, lives were saved, but those left behind are still trying to rebuild. Many are waiting for insurance claims to even be processed. ABC's Melissa Don went to Lahaina, the epicenter of the fires, to hear from those who are still in limbo while trying to heal. About no later than 4 a.m. is when I begin my day. I have a rule, and I don't leave the office until every voicemail email has been dealt with. Insurance executive Mahialani Strong is a Lahaina native and on the front line of the work to rebuild. There's a lot of people that 
underbought insurance because they didn't plan for something like this to happen. She says the process of filing out a claim is a challenge. Imagine living in a home for 20 years and having to inventory everything you had in that home in order to collect your check. As of last December, more than 3,900 homeowners have filed insurance claims in the Maui fire, with nearly 1,600 of those properties suffering a total loss. Roughly 30% of claim money has not been paid, equal to more than $456 million. I think some of my biggest frustrations are fighting for what I believe they should be getting and getting a kickback or having to wait till it goes through a process. But with so much about the future still so uncertain, the community taking comfort in the past, leaning on traditions and ancient wisdoms. Hawaiian cultural leader Wilmont Kahayali calling on ancestors for support and guidance in this E Alae ceremony. The ceremony itself takes people to the water's edge and they go into that water and come out having a whole new experience, almost like being born anew. And in that newness, hope. When you're a navigator, you have to see the beginning of the horizon and know that you're gonna chart a course to reach your destination. Melissa Don, ABC News, Maui. One source of healing and recovery in Maui is music and its strong connection to tradition and culture. ABC's Will Carr on the sounds helping those displaced from the fires find comfort. Music on Maui is more than just a melody. It's culture and history and community all wrapped into what's called mele. I almost don't want to use the word therapeutic, but that's probably a good word. Uh, it's a way to minister to other people, to assist them in bringing people together, to share in joys, to share in sadness. Sadness has swept across Maui after fires devastated much of Lahaina. Lost in the disaster, Lahaina Music, a store filled with instruments owned by Jason and Vanya Jerome. personal instruments were in the store when it burned, that was all gone. But we received some generous donations from some people that enabled the Aloha, for example, gave me this ukulele, which was awesome. The Aloha spirit of people being willing to give and help each other out has really been inspiring. Thanks to that Aloha spirit, the Jeromes are still playing, joining other Hawaiian artists, including Jack Johnson, striving to keep music on Maui alive. The organization teaming up with Johnson and touring artist and longtime Hawaii resident Ron Ortiz II, handing out guitars and ukuleles to kids at the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua, many whom lost their instruments when their homes burned. We pass our instruments down in generations. So if you had an instrument, ukulele from your grandmother, a guitar from your grandfather, your great-grandfather, that's not replaceable. But we wanted to come and say, hey, we want to give you something that can help with your journey and help keep music, that fire of music, in your life. Don't be afraid, the pain can't hurt you anymore. Oh, oh, oh. What does melee mean to you? It's all collaborative and it's something that people can share together. And if you can't sing and you can't play an instrument, just, you know, tapping on a, a table to, to keep the beat. And these people have poured knowledge into me very graciously and now it's my joy to be able to pass it on to others. It's kind of like a river, you're just a part in it. That river still flowing amidst a scarred landscape. Oh
ABC's Will Carr on the music of Maui. Coming up, black athletes take a breather and open up about their mental health in an intimate conversation with ABC's Michael Strahan. That's on Perspective after this. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Derek Dennis. Coming up, imagine making nearly a million dollars by wearing a colorful, overstuffed costume in public. I'll tell you how, but first... As we mark Black History Month, a candid conversation with African-American athletes about their mental health. Good Morning America co-anchor Michael Strahan, a former professional football player himself, sitting down with Jets defensive lineman Solomon Thomas, Olympic track and field athlete Anna Cockrell, three-time NBA All-Star Carl Anthony Towns, black athletes in a safe space, opening up about their struggles, the importance of therapy, and about owning their own story. I'm learning how to live a new life in this new pain, in this journey of grief that's like a roller coaster. In 2018, New York Jets defensive lineman Solomon Thomas had just finished his rookie year. Shortly after, his sister Ella died by suicide. That's when he says his mental health struggles began. I grew up the mentality, hey, like, you know, be a man, be tough, like, push through it. You know, after my sister died, I had all these emotions and feelings I had never felt before. Like, deep depression, deep guilt. For Olympian track and field athlete Anna Cockrell. Wow, Anna Cockrell went blowing by. It was her third year of college when she began to struggle. A lot of the typical depression symptoms that you hear about just didn't apply to me. I was doing all the things you're supposed to do and still felt terrible. And for three-time NBA All-Star, Towns, no hesitation, swish! Timberwolves center Carl Anthony Towns, it was after losing multiple family members, including his beloved mother to COVID-19, that his world came to a standstill. It was the first time in a way the world was silent. And in that silence, I realized that in this whole process, I never took time to take care of myself. And I got to a point where I had to start realizing I was deteriorating. There are many barriers to having these tough conversations in the black community. Among them, stigma, access, high cost, and shame. Statistics show that only one in three black adults with mental illness obtain treatment. How did your teammates react? How did your family react? Once I started going and started feeling better, that's what opened the door to the conversation because there was a noticeable difference. Therapy is great when you're in the crisis but I found the most benefit from it when I was going consistently because sometimes you need to get to the root of the problem and not just treat the symptoms. I think at first my parents, they just didn't quite understand. Like I think there was a lot of struggle for them of thinking, what did we do wrong? Did we make a mistake? 
and having to reassure them. Almost like a new a new era because, you know, I I didn't have parents who were, were going to be into therapy. It was like, if you're feeling that way, you suck it up and yeah. you get through it. Yeah. You figure it out. Old school yeah. route. Yeah. And not that they didn't care about our feelings. They didn't want to hear our feelings. They didn't know how to handle it themselves. Absolutely. Uh, therapy saved my life. For me, my mom really encouraged me to go to therapy. And I was really resistant. I was reluctant. Your goal is to always be the best you that you can ever be. That's why therapy is so important, because it helped me find out who I was. You know, this is 2024 now, and we're having this conversation. I came into the NFL in 1993, and it was definitely a totally different world way back then as far as your mental health. It wasn't even addressed. Was there any embarrassment that you were struggling? I felt a lot of shame. I was really embarrassed. When you're stuck in that cycle, you feel so empty, you feel so alone, and you feel like you're the only one going through it to a point where you even feel like you're crazy, and, and you're not. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to mental health in the black community? I think, speaking very broadly, like as a black community, we are very protective of our image as a community. So I think there's some shame and some stigma of wanting to keep things in-house for fear of what it will look like if it goes beyond our homes or our families. I think it's a generational trait. I think so, too. It's something that has plagued our community because of how strong we had to be for so long just to get the rights we refuse to allow anything to ruin what we've built. How can we change it? Things like this, yeah. being able to have four African-Americans on a couch here talking openly about our, our struggles and, and how we've dealt with it. And we know for black women that their pain is truly often ignored. So how does this play into your mental health journey and your advocacy? I think that's a big reason for my advocacy at all. Letting them know you don't have to take everything on. Your pain, your experience, your voice, your struggles, your success, they all matter. I look at this conversation as a celebration. Yeah. The celebration of being free enough, confident enough, strong enough, supported enough to share how you truly feel to the world. You're serving a greater good by being here. Our thanks to ABC's Michael Strahan. Cirque du Soleil has been mesmerizing spectators for generations. The high-flying acts, the dazzling costumes, the heart-stopping acrobatics. And across the pond, an American flying trapeze performer is appearing in an all-new Cirque du Soleil show in London. ABC's Tom Rivers talked to her exclusively. To be young, doing what you want, doing your own thing, swimming against the career tide most follow. Her name, Kate Redman one of the leading stars of the latest Cirque du Soleil production to hit Europe. She's one of only two American performers in a large team of over a hundred in the revamped and re-imaged classic for a new generation, Alegria in a New Life. It actually feels pretty remarkable. I'm very grateful to be in this uh, prestigious and historical space. And yeah, every day, just looking out at the audience, it's an extraordinary feeling to see all their smiles and having them share in the celebration of this show, Alegria. The spellbinding show at the iconic Royal Albert Hall has been getting rave reviews. So how did Kate end up thousands of miles from home doing something she really, truly loves? Well, it's a dream that began many years ago. I grew up in um, my hometown, Peru, Indiana, and they had a summer youth program there that I participated in. Um, it's for circus arts, for young children to learn circus. And that's sort of where I fell in love with the idea of performing in a circus. My mom was actually 
also part of the amateur circus that I was part of. Um, so I did that until I was 18. I went away to university. I didn't really know much about the professional trapeze industry until I started teaching at um, a trapeze school in Seattle, Washington. And that's sort of where I was introduced to other professional trapeze artists. I was able to sort of train alongside them and find out that you don't necessarily have to come from a traditional circus family to perform. And so that sort of put the idea in my head that that's something I'd also like to do. So I was fortunate enough to begin working with the Flying Tunisiani Troupe in 2018, and um, I've been working with them ever since. So yeah, we're all really grateful to be part of the show Alegria now. Life on the road full of adventure, learning, and embracing new things. Cast members, for instance, come from 22 different countries. That's something I love the most about um, what I do, I guess, because I'm not only experiencing other cultures like by living there, but I'm also experiencing them by sharing this show with other people from different cultures and countries. Um, it's sort of just like we're opened my worldview to what else is out there, and I enjoy learning about my colleagues and getting to share in their traditions as well. London feels fantastic, she says, but in a few weeks, there will be another city and new things to experience. There are moments definitely where I miss home, I miss things about the United States, but it's also such a unique experience to be able to live in different countries. You know, sometimes, of course, I miss home, I miss things about the United States, but my friends and family are really kind. They come to visit, so it makes traveling a bit easier. Um, well, I guess it makes being away from them a bit, e a bit easier. From Indiana to the top of the big top in some of the biggest cities in Europe, not bad for the high-flying American trapeze artist in the form of Kate Redmond. For perspective, Tom Rivers, ABC News, at London's Royal Albert Hall. Coming up, Usher taking center stage. The R&B star headlines Super Bowl 58's halftime show, why he says he felt the pressure like never before. On Perspective, after this. You're listening to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Derek Dennis. Ever wonder what team mascots earn in pay? Try more than half a million dollars for some of the more popular ones. But it's not all about the money. It's teamwork, team spirit, and keeping fans engaged and excited for more. ABC News Nightline correspondent Ashan Singh goes inside a mascot boot camp and compares the original Philly fanatic to the other Philly favorite, the Flyers hockey mascot, Gritty. Team mascots. They're much more than furry creatures doing silly moves. Inside every costume is a full-fledged performer. Some, like the San Antonio Spurs Coyote, displaying athleticism rivaling players on their teams. Amassing huge followings, all their own. And some are cashing in, big. At the very top, Rocky the Mountain Lion, the Denver Nuggets mascot reportedly making $625,000 a year. Followed by the Atlanta Hawks' Harry the Hawk at $600,000, and that's just their salary. But in the world of Major League mascots, it doesn't get much bigger than Gritty. With over 2 million followers on social media. Beyond the rink, he's quickly become one of the faces of the city, even appearing on ABC's Abbott Elementary. I'm gonna have to Photoshop Janine out of this, but this is a cute picture though. No one knows the hard work it takes to reach Gritty's level of fame, 
better than his creator, Dave Raymond. <laughs> you know when you've done a good job, Gritty, when the rest of the mascots in the NHL are a little, a little jealous. Are the rest of the mascots jealous of Gritty? <laughs> <laughs> That's only going to level other people up. They're going to say, we need to be as good as, and Gritty is one of the placeholders, the Fanatic is one of the placeholders. Anyone who's anyone in this world knows Dave Raymond. I am the Fanatic's best friend. I watch out for everything that he does. The original Philly Fanatic from 1978 to 1993, a pioneer who pretty much wrote the blueprint for all the mascots who followed. The Fanatic was the first team-created concept that they treated it like a, the most important marketing decision they could make. Since then, he's been at the forefront of shaping mascotting into a thriving career and business model. The first step always is show me the backstory. Where are they from? How'd they get here? The only way you can get people to care is to tell a story that comes right from you. Creating that backstory is key when Dave hosts his annual mascot boot camp. With a so-called fraternity of characters, get to know others like them. I am well known as a mascot performer for the Lake Elsinore Storm. I perform as Hootie the Hustlin' Owl for the Oregon Institute of Technology. My character is Buster. We associate him as the cousin of the fanatic. I am the mascot and entertainment manager for the Richmond Flying Squirrels. They've gathered from across the country for three intense days of training to learn the secrets of their craft. From the practical, okay, let's talk about hydration, to the musical, even the philosophical. This isn't just silly furriness. You know, they're really changing people's days. They're making people feel better. In addition to having a strong backstory, a good mascot has to become a fearless performer by getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. So the reason why we do this is just to make you feel weird because there are going to be things you're going to be asked to do in acting that is out of your comfort zone. Another important part of the craft. Coming a mascot. Suiting up. What happens when you put on that suit? I can be myself. The barrier that stands between me being myself just finally falls down, and it's just unbridled joy for me that I can hopefully, you know, ignite into someone else. Oh, no, that's right, yeah. It. The mascots act out complicated skits. Dance and do tricks in costumes weighing upwards of 40 pounds and make it look effortless. This is a lot of work, man. What separates to you a good performer? Because they're all good right. from a great performer. I think it's mostly nonverbal communication and their ability to move in a way that you remember them. Mascots who have carved out a name for themselves end up here at the Mascot Hall of Fame in the small city of Whiting, Indiana. Dave puts his class to the test at a birthday party. The mascots win the audience over, one smile and one selfie at a time. They just connect on this emotional level and you forget about whatever's going on bad for a few minutes. Regardless of the score, Dave says it's the mascots that are making the memories. What mascots do is serious fun. This is something that can change lives. We gotta make sure we recognize how important fun is in our lives, not just to take a break, but to be better mentally and physically. Super Bowl 58 weekend, seeing the much-anticipated matchup between the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs in Las Vegas. The excitement of the game also matched by singer Usher and his iconic halftime performance. ABC News Entertainment contributor Kelly Carter sat down with the R&B star before the show to get his take on preparing for such a big moment while cementing his place in black history. 
So you get the call from Jay-Z that this is actually happening. It's kind of like an adrenaline high, right? You're like, yeah, of course. But then you really think about it, like, wait a minute. The work you got to do to do this is like, <laughs> it's a lot, but I'm ready. The eight-time Grammy winner revealing R&B is taking the spotlight. To have R&B have the main stage at the Super Bowl yeah. is a major thing for me. I think about what our country has, you know, kind of represented for black artists. Mm. You know, having to, at some point, go through kitchens to even be able to perform for audience. But they had to leave back through that same door, you know, fear for their lives as they went to the next state to do the same thing. Mm. So I'm coming through the front door with this one. Usher's teenage sons, Cinco and Navid, weighing in. So tons and tons of listening <laughs> sessions with my kids, <laughs> you know. But um, I think it's a, a love letter in some way mm. and a reminder that no matter how far you may go, you will find your way back home eventually. You make me want to say, oh, 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 oh. A career spanning three decades, this Super Bowl performance will be another page in the legacy. I didn't start where I am now, and I didn't get there by myself. So everybody that has been a part of it, all of my fans, my loved ones, people who, you know, may have felt like they have been forgotten, they haven't. I'm carrying you right with me when I walk on that stage that night. Our thanks to Kelly Carter and Usher. Before we go, a word about the crowdfunding site GoFundMe. Its CEO, Tim Cadigan, announcing this week the site has generated a whopping $30 billion in donations since it was founded in 2010. And 150 million people have either given or received donations through GoFundMe campaigns. Those are big numbers, but even more telling is who's doing the giving. The Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy looked into it in 2021. Dr. Una Osali is the Associate Dean of Research. When we look at the demographics of crowdfunding users, on average, they tend to be younger. They tend to be diverse. Unlike uh, traditional charitable donors, they also tend to have an interest in real time, as we noted, feedback, being able to make a difference. And they don't tend to have the same profile as traditional charitable donors. With crowdfunding, there's a much broader group of individuals that participate. Some of them may not be religiously motivated, but simply inclined to give a, a donation to causes to other people that may need assistance, and to network, sometimes friends, family, uh, strangers that are in need, and receive real-time feedback on how their donations are making a difference. She added crowdfunding has been around long before the GoFundMe platform was created. She mentioned how the base of the Statue of Liberty in New York's harbor was built with proceeds from a crowdfunding campaign led by Joseph Pulitzer in the late 1800s. Of course, the pitfalls are well documented, not a lot of government regulation, users having to do their own due diligence, crooks taking advantage of those who sincerely want to give. But the benefits? Billions of dollars going to individuals and causes in need. From ABC News, this has been Perspective. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Aaron Ferrer, Marwa Muwaki, and Joy Piazza. If you want to listen to any of our past shows, subscribe to the Perspective Podcast. Give us a review. If you've got the time, tell us what you'd like to hear in the future and what you think. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find Perspective and other ABC News shows at abcaudio.com slash podcasts. 
For ABC News, I'm Derek Dennis. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.